Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ National, presented by Alison Balance and Veronica Maduna. And finally on Our Changing World tonight, New Zealand's fat issue. If you're struggling with your weight, don't blame yourself. Instead, blame the food and advertising industries for saturating our environment with processed, energy-dense food options. New Zealand is now the third fattest nation within the OECD. One in every three adults is obese, and 10% of children are seriously overweight. Robin Tumath is an Auckland diabetes specialist who, for many years, fronted a campaign to end the obesity epidemic and has now written a book called Fat Science. In it, she argues that obesity is not the responsibility of the individual, but of society as a whole. Veronica meets her to hear what needs to happen to stop people from getting fatter. But first, she talks to Massey University sociologist Andrew Dixon about his own experience with being big. Weight is such a critical part of how we view bodies that seeing beyond that kind of thing is really, really difficult. Andrew Dixon once dropped 40 kilograms in four months. His doctor had prescribed the appetite-suppressing drug Reductil, which has since been banned in most countries, including New Zealand, because it increases the risk of heart attack or stroke. Even once he stopped taking the drug, he managed to lose more weight through what he describes as bloody-minded persistence and running through hunger. But then he gained some weight again to eventually arrive at a point where he is now happy enough with his size. Probably I'm in the least anxious about my body size phase that I've ever been as an adult. But I'm still really anxious about it. It still occupies quite a lot of my thinking. If I catch sight of myself in a mirror, I'm still judging my own body. Um, I think the position of being just comfortable with your body is a fantasy. I think you know everyone is always in contest with their own body. And the question is whether you can get to a point where you can live comfortably in your own skin. And I'm definitely the best I've been in my adult life at the size I am now. Andrew is both fat and fit. He's a long-distance runner and trains every other day, at least. He thinks of himself as healthy, even though he has a body mass index, or BMI, that puts him in the overweight or even obese category. It's a useful population measure device. The problem with a population measuring device is that you have to assemble a set of individual pieces of data in order to get that population measure. And on an individual level, it's close to meaningless. So for me, I think I could be healthy in terms of living the same length of life anywhere from 25 on the BMI through to 35. And that's an enormous weight range. Moving around in that, because I mean, I dropped from 35 to about 27 on the BMI scale. My blood pressure didn't shift at all. My cholesterol was exactly the same. The only thing that changed dramatically was my resting pulse rate, um, which lowered. No real reason to be able to draw information from that saying that I'm going to live longer. 
So at an individual level, I think the PMI is um, pejorative. I think it creates a lot of pain. I think it's a incredibly dangerous um, mechanism. At a population level, I understand why people use it. Having spoken to many other people who have struggled with body weight, he has nothing good to say about the dieting industry. Happiness is fleeting. There's a lot of misery in those worlds. There's a lot of eating disorders that develop. It's not an enjoyable place to be. I think the promise of radical weight loss followed by a happy life must be one of the most egregious lies of the weight loss industry designed purely to get people to try diet after diet with the support, I might add, of a lot of people in the medical fraternity. This is how I was trained to deal with type 2 diabetes and you could look through the handwritten clinic notes and you would see the instructions given by doctors preceding me that if you could only lose you know, just a couple of kilograms that'll make the difference between whether or not you need to move on to insulin or not, which is true actually that quite small differences in weight can stop somebody from progressing in terms of their diabetes. But the trouble is, you know, you could flick back through the years and see the same instructions being given and patients failing to achieve what seemed like quite reasonable goals. Robin Tumerth is an endocrinologist and diabetes specialist at Auckland Hospital. For 14 years, she fronted the Fight the Obesity Epidemic, or FOAL campaign. But late last year, she wound up the action group because she felt she'd made no progress. Since then, she's written a book, Fat Science, in which she argues that being overweight or obese is not a matter of personal choice or responsibility, but an issue that society will have to address. It really sort of crystallised for me when I did start to see some of the very high-achieving people, which is, you know, this is not the run-of-the-mill person that you see in clinic, but every now and again somebody who was astonishingly successful and absolutely dedicated to take control of their weight would go about it with great determination, with plans. We would talk about food, we would talk about getting a dog or taking up tennis or joining the gym. And these were often people who had the resources to achieve all of these things. Because often when you're working in a hospital clinic, you see people who are time poor, who are cash poor, who don't have the ability to adjust their diet in the way that would be most helpful. But when I started to see people who did have all these resources and see them fail, that really made me stop and think. Actually, of course, quite often they were successful in the outset. So I would see them at the beginning when they were first diagnosed and people would sometimes lose quite considerable amounts of weight over six months and we'd all be thrilled to bits. And then after a year they would come back and it would start to come back up again. And people that I'd been following over years would then follow the same pattern of behaviour as the folk that I'd been seeing in the hospital clinics. So there was no difference whether or not you were... a a determined, highly achieving individual or somebody who was facing all sorts of financial odds, the outcome was the same. And that made you think that there's other reasons for it, that the usual prescriptions of either dieting or increasing your exercise, that's just not enough, that's not actually going to make a difference? I think they would make a difference if they were achievable, but human behaviour being what it is. And my behaviour is no different, actually. I could reflect and think, you know, how many things have I dramatically changed in my life away from doing things that I like doing to things that I don't like doing, and probably very, very few, I would think. If any. Yeah, if, if any. So it was not that calorie restriction wouldn't work. It would if we could achieve it. But if these people couldn't achieve calorie restriction, then who could? 
you know, the theory was right, calories in, calories out, but it just wasn't achievable. How do you explain then the obesity epidemic that we're facing now? You know, why is it a problem now and hasn't been, say, 200 years ago? Yeah, we don't have to go back 200 years. We can go back 40 years and we didn't have an obesity epidemic. The difference, obviously, is it's the way we eat. It's the frequency with which we eat, the ubiquity of food, and most particularly the type of food. So processed food produces a whole range of things that we didn't eat 50 years ago, and the ability of food producers to manipulate food to make it maximally palatable and to make it maximally marketable uh, is astonishing. So we all respond to value for money. We respond to high salt, sugar, fat tastes and foods, so we now have a range of very, very tasty food, very, very cheap and available 24 hours a day and widely promoted through every form of media in a way that's quite astonishingly different to 40 or 50 years ago. So we are enticed to eat and we're enticed to eat more calories and while some are enticed more than others, we are all doing it. It's almost hard to avoid it, it'd be harder to seek out healthy food. If you're somebody who is not, you know, strongly motivated to eat tasty food and you are actually, you have a preference for eating smaller quantities of healthier food, we're often absolutely challenged to find this stuff, actually. If you go into many, many cafes, you won't be able to find, you know, food that's in small enough quantities uh, or that's healthy. But I think more of the problem is that for those people who have the genetic predisposition to be food seekers, then the enticement to eat when you're given a plate of food that's one and a half times the size it would have been several years ago is, you know, people faced with that kind of enticement will eat the food and you will choose the high calorie, you know, the the delicious high calorie food over the rather more boring, perhaps low calorie food. Now, on that genetic predisposition, you, you say in the book that it's somewhere between 40 and 70% of how we deal with food or how our weight is determined yeah. is, in fact, genetic. That's a big range, obviously, and you think, well, you know, what are we talking about here? If we go back to the study that Albert Stunkard conducted, I think it was published in the early 90s, but the study related to a much earlier period where they looked at twins who were reared apart, I think it was during the Second World War, so in order to escape from, um, you know, European cities being destroyed, children were often sent into the countryside and quite often twins were separated. And in the Scandinavian country in which the study was conducted, they had very good birth records and they were able to go back and trace twins who had been reared completely apart from a small age at about the age of 50 and they found that there was incredibly high concordance in the weights of the twins and these weren't you know there was higher concordance for identical twins and lower concordance for non-identical twins as you would expect for a genetic condition and there was almost no relationship between the 50 year old individual and the weights of the adoptive siblings and their conclusion back then was that environment played almost no part whatsoever in one's final weight. And in some respects, we kind of know this, because if we look at our siblings and we look at our friends, we can so clearly see the similarity between our body shapes and sizes and our siblings, even as middle-aged individuals. 
So, um, so these guys would have put the genetic component at a much at the higher end of the scale, but in recent times, of course, the the effect of environment has become greater and greater, and some people say that you know you, you need the environmental change to maximise the genetic effect. So the potential effect of genes is, is magnified by the environment, but it's so clearly a mix of the two. Can I ask you to think about this from an evolutionary perspective? Is it a matter that people who were good at getting the most out of little food might have been the bigger contributors to our survival over the millennia? Yeah, and yeah. now I mean, they're dealing with lots and lots mm, of food? Of course, this is a sort of a, um, a highly adaptive tray which has become maladaptive only in extremely recent times and uh, I mean people have talked about diabetes in the same way you know the the thrifty genotype has been proposed to be along the same lines is that if you've inherited genes which had allowed you to survive through long periods of starvation the story with diabetes is that you may run higher than normal insulin levels so that when you meat carbohydrate after an interval after a longish period of time you don't consume the food and then spill over the carbohydrate into your urine and waste it so you have insulin levels which are high so you can absorb all of the food that you encounter but the story with regard to obesity is that clearly there are food seeking behaviors and you see it in modern life you do see it you know i sit down with a group of friends and people eat differently there is no question that people who are heavier eat more food. They often eat higher density food, you know, the, the sweeter food or the higher fat food. And this would have been highly valuable uh, during times of famine and, and deprivation, which of course has been the greatest threat over, you know, in evolutionary times. It's only very, very recently that food has been plentiful uh, for most of the population. Only very recently have we had a greater problem globally with an excess of weight than a deficiency of weight. We have more problems with obesity than we have with starvation, but that's a very new phenomenon. The higher weight is not the only problem, the only health problem that people then start struggling with. There's a clear link between higher weight, overweight, obesity and diabetes. What else happens in the body? Yeah, I mean, this is where people get people get annoyed about the use of a term like the body mass index because it's really pretty crude. It just corrects your weight for your height, which you clearly have to do. But there is much more to it than that. I mean, there are some features related to morbid obesity which are purely physical, that if you're a very large person, it's difficult to be agile and to move around, and there are some problems associated with this. But what we see much more commonly are the features of the metabolic syndrome. And so the increased prevalence of type 2 diabetes, of conditions like osteoarthritis and cancers, is because of the low-grade pro-inflammatory effects which are consequent upon insulin resistance and this comes about because of fat within the abdominal cavity and I know this sounds very bizarre but fat outside the abdominal cavity if anything is healthy so if you see people who've got a genetic variant of lipoatrophy so you don't have fat in the subcutaneous space those people are at 
as high risk or possibly even higher risk of developing diabetes and other problems because we need a safe place where we can store fat where it's not harmful to us. So subcutaneous fat, so anybody out there who's got a, you know, a big bottom, that's very, very good. But um, fat packed around the viscera, fat that is absorbed through the portal system and is delivered to the, to the liver, induces behaviours within the liver which drives insulin resistance. So some ethnic groups will, will just by nature of the body shape, will accumulate more fat in the abdominal cavity than others. And this is why we have different cutoff values for healthy body mass index. So that, for example, um, somebody who is South Indian um, may have a very small frame, but more likely to increase fat accumulation in the abdomen. A Pacific Island person may be very heavy, but have a lot of it as subcutaneous fat. So the body mass index, which is healthy for a Pacific Islander, is up to 27. And of course, you know, as we grow older, we lose our fat from the subcutaneous spaces and it accumulates in our abdominal cavity and we're more likely to get diabetes as we get older, um, possibly for that reason as well as, you know, failing pancreas over time. So the overall message is and remains that being thin is the healthiest option. Yes, it's very unfortunate. I mean, we would like to say that being normal is healthy. And this is an odd thing that being normal these days is not being thin. Most of us are overweight or, uh, uh, or obese, in fact. And um, so we're thinking, surely to goodness, you know, this is, life expectancy is increasing. Surely that means that it's okay to be overweight. Well, life expectancy is increasing because we are much better at dealing with the consequences of overweight and, of course, so many other things. You know, we have really good treatments for diabetes and heart disease and cancers and so forth, and less of us are smoking. But actually, when you do the hard science and you go back and you say, what is the weight that would be most um, desirable for longevity or for disease-free life. And the reality is that a body mass index that gives you the lowest um, amount of fat in the abdominal cavity without being too thin is still the healthiest weight. And that means probably a body mass index of, well, it's certainly under 25 for a Caucasian person, but really it's sort of 21 to 22 if you look at the hard science. How can we get there, though? You argue in your book that to blame people individually and to make them do it by themselves is not working and can't be expected. So it really requires a societal change, and you refer to it as a change in the default environment that we all live in. Yeah. And I'm particularly kind of concerned looking at the obesity and overweight rates in children. Getting accustomed to that particular environment starts so early that losing weight as a teenager or as a young person once you've been overweight as a child must be the hardest thing. It is the hardest thing. If we decided to prioritise a healthy environment for our population, nobody has done this, but if we said, look, you know, we talk about redistribution of wealth, we talk about a whole lot of social goods, which is sort of part of the fabric of our society. This is a new thing. We haven't really thought about it this before, but what about we decided that we wanted an environment which favoured slimness. If we recognised that the human body is not fit for purpose in our modern world and that we have to do something different, would we have all of this unhealthy food available? Would we allow you know, manufacturers to produce this food, to sell it 
you know, ad libitum, would we want it promoted on television? Would we want it promoted on billboards all over town? Or perhaps would we want to be promoting healthy food? If we had healthy food promoted the way we have unhealthy food, how different would our world look? It would be unrecognisable. But that clearly is the obvious thing to do. We should be promoting healthy food. And at the moment, we're promoting an unhealthy diet, hand over fist. We're not restraining it in any way whatsoever. Not even with children. Not even with children. So we're doing diametrically the opposite of what we should be doing if we're wanting people to eat healthily. That's even without looking at physical activity. And although exercise is no more effective than dieting as a way of actively losing weight, to optimise physical activity is highly desirable. And there are millions of ways in which we could be doing this and we're just scratching the surface when we start talking about walkable cities but if we were determined to optimise physical activity, all of our physical environments would look different. Here in the hospital you have to look very hard to find the stairs. The stairs are not at the obvious place that you would need to find. You find yourself taking a lift because they're in the right in the place where you need to move between floors. We could be designing our buildings completely differently, uh, not to mention our towns and cities. But pragmatically, how could you do that? I'd hazard a guess that a lot of people listening to your suggestion of you know, what would happen if we promoted healthy food would actually like that. Yes. But how do you make change like that happen? Is it a sugar tax? Is it some sort of fiscal measure that equals the price for healthy versus junk food? Look, I think it's a lot of things. We have to look at examples from other parts of the world. So... Governments are starting to respond to the public clamour for a healthier food environment. I'm always seeing examples from France of good things that they're doing with regard to waste, with regard to making, you know, funny-shaped food, the sort of food that's generally rejected by the supermarkets as being imperfect is now being sold at very cheap prices. And, super, you know, there's a ban on throwing out food in some supermarkets in the world. It's so this not is the just mis- misshaped pear and the misshaped Yeah, exactly. Carrot. It's not something just as crude as um, taxation. It's about deciding that there's a lot of nutri- a lot of good food out there is being wasted and we need to make this more available to people on restricted incomes. I think these sorts of things are very important. And restrictions on advertising have been attempted in different parts of the world. Taxation has been, you know, people talk about the Danish tax having failed as being um, a justification for not embarking on taxation. But the Danish fat tax was, in fact, successful, and it did reduce fat. The study showed that it, it reduced fat quite significantly, and the only reason why it failed was because of the lobby. There was a change of government, and intense lobbying by industry um, had them cave. The Mexican sugar tax is also under threat because of lobbying, but once again, it's been extremely successful. So I think that momentum is gaining to look at fiscal measures. Once again, we've got to look at the tobacco story. For about 10 years after tobacco was identified as being extremely unhealthy, there was an education program which was designed to stop people from smoking. It made absolutely no difference whatsoever. And it was only as different restrictions on sales started to be introduced, and particularly increases in price, that tobacco consumption started to fall. Now, what really was critical in terms of 
successful, you know, getting governments to buy into this was the very careful collection of data demonstrating that tobacco sales weren't changing. Then as every new initiative came on, you know, the data kept being collected and collected. So one of the things that public health experts around the world are starting to do is to collect the data demonstrating the lack of success with current measures. You know, every Ministry of Health in the world knows that obesity is a huge problem and that something needs to be done. But their naive view that this can change as a result of persuading people and educating people needs to be uh, challenged, and data collection is the beginning of this. That was Robin Tumath, an Auckland diabetes specialist and author of Fat Science, published by Auckland University Press. You also heard from Massey University sociologist Andrew Dixon. That's all for now. For more, check us out on the web, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Ka kite anō. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.